Biden has picked Kamala Harris again for the third time. His memory's gone. Well, it's time for Ask Henry. Henry Huckamaki will answer. Oh, there they go. Look at all those arms going up. People have questions for Henry Huckamaki. And everybody should subscribe to Henry Huckamaki's Patreon account to get a newsletter from Henry delivered to your inbox. He writes about public health, science, and, of course, COVID-19. When Henry is not quarantining in Michigan, he is in Germany fighting Ebola. We have him here in America. Let's take some questions for Henry. How are you, Henry? Not too bad, David. How are you? I'm hanging in there, and we have a big pay-per-view event, right? Yeah, just coming up right around the corner. Lots of fun stuff planned for it. So uh, we'll get the information out there once uh, everything's finalized. There's going to be a pay-per-view event with you, an irritable immunologist, taking people's questions, and it's very exciting. You wanted to clear something up, Henry. Well, it's less of clearing something up and more of just adding some some richness to the conversation. So uh, it was a couple weeks ago during Professor Hussein's conversation with you. He mentioned something about how we can see evidence of stress within groups of people down through generations. So, for example, if there was a war in a country and this group of people suffered a lot of stress, we could actually see markers of that stress in people that were the children and grandchildren of the people who lived during the war, even if they didn't themselves live through the war. So uh, Adnan's absolutely correct about this, and I just want to add the scientific reasoning for this. So the mechanism of this, uh, what we would call inherited stress or inherited life events is called epigenetic inheritance. So, What does epigenetic mean? Good question, David. There's, there's essentially two ways that you can think about how your genetic code is structured. You have genetics, which is the, the list of your nucleotides. So um, just the, the letters that we see as representing DNA, A, T, C, G. And that is a list that then gets changed into mRNA, and the mRNA then makes proteins, and the proteins then make your body and all the things that happen in it. But not all of your DNA is able to be read all the time. There's times where the DNA will be folded in a way, because there'll be proteins on the outside of it, for example, that'll prevent some of those letters from being read, which means that whatever genes are being hidden by that, or we would say silenced, even though you have it in your genetic code, you're not actually going to get the proteins or the effect of that piece of genetic information. So that's what we call epigenetics. It's outside of your actual genetic code itself because you still have those letters, but what is being expressed is different. Now, the interesting thing about epigenetics, originally we thought that things that would affect you during your life If it wasn't from your genetic code itself, it wouldn't get passed down to your kids. So easy way of thinking of it. If you were genetically tall, let's say you had two tall parents, you would likely be tall and you would have the genes for being tall. However, let's say you had two tall parents, but when you were young, 
you had a, a bad diet and you broke a leg and didn't get much exercise or something like that. You didn't have enough milk when you were young. So you ended up being pretty short. You would still have the tall genes because your parents passed those to you. And then when you had kids, your kids would still get one of those tall genes from you. And then if the mother was also tall, they would get one from them. But what we've learned since then is through this mechanism of epigenetic in inheritance, where we have these other things that are affecting how the DNA structure is. So we have proteins that are folding the DNA in different ways is really a lay, lay person's way of thinking about it. These markers can actually get passed down through generations. So if you had a very bad diet or you were obese for most of your life, you can actually pass some of these things that affect how your DNA is folded to your children or your grandchildren. And one of the things that we've seen strong uh, effects with is stress. So Adnan's correct. Stress has a major impact on the physiology of the body. One of my friends did research on, this is just one example, but menarche, which is the age at which uh, a woman has her first period, the age of menarche is affected dramatically by stress. So my friend did research where they were looking at the age of menarche in countries that had civil war or other kind of domestic conflict and found that the age of menarche was significantly lower in those girls than in countries where uh, it was relatively stable. Is that stable. stress or is that... It's, it, it can be a lot of different things, but in this case, it was primarily stress. These people lived in... Uh, low socioeconomic statuses in places that were under civil war for, for many years. And the thing about the age of menarche, when girls have their periods younger, their first period younger, it means that they're menstruating for a longer period of time, which dramatically increases your risk of certain types of cancer, breast cancer, cervical cancer. And so this is a really big thing, but even if those people had children... And the children had no stress. Let's say that they lived in a, a pampered lifestyle because they left the, the parents left as refugees and grew up in the U.S. and had money and all of that. The daughters of that that uh, of the woman, let's say, for example, who was in the war torn country, would still get those uh, methylation or acetylation markers that would cause their DNA to be folded in a different way and would more likely have early menarche than if their mother had grown up in a relatively safe area. So this is something that we never think about. I, I mean, we, when you were in biology class, David, in high school, you probably heard about Lamarck versus Darwin. Darwin said um, there's in, inherited traits that are passed down that don't change during the lifetime other than very, very slowly through mutations. Again, basically, that's what Darwin was saying. And there was this guy, Lamarck, who said that over the course of the organism's life, they could actually change their own physical attributes and those could be passed down. So a way of thinking about it would be a giraffe. If it had a short neck and couldn't reach the leaves on the tree, if it kept stretching and stretching, its neck would get longer and longer and eventually it'd be able to reach the tree. And then its kids would also be able to have longer necks. And people laughed at Lamarckists for centuries, but we're actually finding out now that because of epigenetic inheritance, that might not have been the most crazy idea in the world, because we actually do see evidence of, of things like that happening. Hmm. And so when 
a, a group of people are oppressed, when they live with the fear of the police shooting them, lynching them, that stress is in the DNA. Yes. Uh, here's a good example of exactly where you would expect to see that. One of the studies that was done on epigenetic inheritance was done on mice. They would put uh, something that smelled like almonds, a chemical that smelled like almonds into their cage, and then they would shock them every time that they had the smell of almonds. And over the course of these mice's, mice's lives, they became very, very afraid of the smell of almonds. Hmm. Then what happened is they had those mice breed and then their children breed. And both the children and the grandchildren, despite never having been shocked when exposed to the smell of almonds, this chemical that smells like almonds, they both froze completely when they were exposed to the smell of almonds because there was a specific methylation pattern of the parents' DNA that got passed down to the children and the grandchildren. And this holds true for things like smoking, uh, poor diet, drug usage, if these things, these things cause stress on the body. And if you have that for a long period of time, you actually can pass those stress markers down to your children and have effects on them that we don't even fully understand yet. I see. Okay. Let's take some questions, shall we? Sure thing. Let us go to Landrew. Hello, Landrew. You have to unmute yourself. Yep. Hey, thank you. Thank you all for being here. Uh, first, Jim Earl, I'm writing you in for president. So you have already a vote for president. Thank you. Congratulations, Jim Earl. Hey, thanks. Thanks, Landrew. You're a winner in Illinois. <laughs> Great. Well, Henry, I have a, I'm preparing myself for a debate with David. And the topic is should foreign students be allowed to attend U.S. universities? No. And David says no. And, of course, I take the other side of that, working with some of the most brilliant students in the world who come here to our universities, share with us not only their knowledge, but their expertise in many different fields. I, I agree with you entirely, Andrew. They drive um, up the costs. Going into Germany for school, I would hope so. <laughs> Yes, exactly. I, uh, and David's son also went to Germany for some education, and yes. it was free of charge. Uh, it's not the fact that we have international students that's causing the cost of education to go up. It's the politicians allowing the cost of education that, to go up that's causing the cost of education to go up. It's nothing inherent to having international students, but there's been a lot of different analyses that have shown that the more international students that you bring in, because those international students that you bring in are generally the best and the brightest of whatever society that they're coming from, those actually help drive the economy of the countries that they're coming to. So when the U.S. has more international students coming in, especially if you're able to tempt those students to stay in that country after they finish their education. So in the case of the U.S., if we're able to convince those students that the U.S. is a worthwhile place to live in, and after you finish your education here, this is a good place to set up, and you have your opportunity to start a business or get a good job or be a doctor or whatever they want to do. We've seen through many analyses that the economy is dramatically helped by having international students brought in 
And it also helps the other students in the universities because even though universities are not supposed to be competitive institutions, having other very bright people around you inherently causes you to bring out the best in yourself because you don't want to be at the back of the pack. I'm not saying that we should always be striving for competition because I think that we should be a more cooperative society than a competitive society. Being surrounded by people that can bring the best out in you is going to bring the best out in you. And that's something that I see in Germany all the time. We have students from all over the place. It's provided for absolutely free. And the students that are coming in inspire you to be much more than you would have if you were just showing up for the sake of showing up at, at your you know, local university. Not that there's anything wrong with that. All right. I, I would, all right, let's take the next. Oh, oh da- wait, da- David, you're yes. conceding already. We haven't really officially started the debate. So. Oh, when, when are we debating? <laughs> but I'll accept your, I'll accept, I'll accept your forfeiture. Well, because I will guarantee you foreign students in our country are one of the great things about our school systems. We have amazing school systems. And the fact that foreign students come here to go to those schools and bring the expertise that Henry's talking about, I've experienced my whole life. Uh, If I may add one thing, I actually, it's ironic that you bring this up now, Andrew, because it was maybe two or three days ago I saw a paper come out that was looking at the the demographics of international students coming to the U.S. from different time periods, and they found that a few decades ago, back when education was more affordable, the foreign students that were coming in were actually better than they are now because they had to earn their way in to the universities rather than buy their way into the universities. Nowadays, with tuition being so unaffordable in the U.S., the people that would be academic achievers but without having the means to supply for uh, themselves to fly over to the U.S., to have an apartment, because the grants that they're getting are much smaller than you would probably expect. Uh, you know, their, their governments a lot of the times aren't able to support them financially for things like this. But so they're the kids of oligarchs, aren't they? Right. Nowadays it is. So we see, uh, for example, look at the Varsity Blues scandal. It's, it's the rich people's kids getting into elite institutions. That does not help the other people at those elite institutions by raising the level of the discourse. And with the international students nowadays, with the tuition levels being so high, we're seeing the richest kids from international, uh, from foreign countries coming here to take uh, place in U.S. universities. Sometimes these really rich students have had incredible academic upbringings. They've had the best private uh, education and tutors all of their lives, and these people just know everything. Sometimes that happens, but other times it's just they want that degree, that U.S. degree on their CV, and their parents will buy their way into it, essentially. So I just saw this a few days ago, but they they were looking at the, the demographics of the students that were coming in, and it's much less diverse now in terms of economic background, and we're actually not seeing the same kind of economic benefit coming out of it as we used to. All right. To be continued. Yes, Jim Earl. Your your son went to Germany for yes. an education. Yes. Right. And where he got matriculated on. Many times. I didn't know that he was being matriculated on. That's right. They, well, they like that. 
Yeah, but the thing is about Germany, it's free for anybody. He wasn't right. driving up the costs of education for the Germans. Argentina. David, you could go and study cellular biology in Argentina today. Get on. Well, no, you can't. They won't let us come there. But <laughs> once, once you could go and then uh, sequester yourself for a couple of weeks and then go to school for free. Right. Why? So it's a humane country. What kind of country puts people in debt for most of their lives for 30 year mortgage for an education that benefits all of us? And I'm talking about myself, who no longer has any children in university. This and country is just so it's just how do how do we allow this? How do Again, we, David, because don't we blame the international like students Joe for Biden. driving up. I'm sorry, Andrew, go ahead. It's because we continue to vote for people like Joe Biden. That's the problem. And that was that's why we have, what I was that's why we have Donald Dump as president, because we keep Hillary Clinton, Bill Clinton, Obama, all of them. They continue to do the same thing to us because we keep accepting that. What we need to do is run people like Jim Earl for president. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez for president. I was so disappointed when Bernie lost that prize, all because he failed to take a, a, a good question about Joe Biden. When in that yeah. debate, in that debate in South Carolina, when the moderators asked Bernie, can Joe Biden beat Donald Trump? And he said, yes. Yeah. It was over. It was over. That debate was over that moment. What he should have said was, I am the better choice. I am the only one who can beat Donald Trump. That's what he should have said. Because I have the policies that working people need in this country to survive. That's who we needed as president. And now I'm not so sure. Oh. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I agree. You can't change a party by working inside it and befriending everybody inside it. You can't. Exactly. How can you do that? You can't change people you're friends with and you have dinner with on a regular basis. It won't work. So promise me, President Earl, that you won't let that happen. When I'm president, you're the first person I'm going to put in jail, fella, <laughs> because I don't like your attitude. And I don't like your name. <laughs> All right? Look. I no, no, Jim, that's not how you do it. What? Jim, what? Jim, you're showing your hand too soon. Oh. <laughs> Can I yes. call David part of the problem right now? <laughs> David, you're part of the problem. Well, and here, here's why. Okay. You're allowing the powers that be to manipulate you into thinking that the international students are the reason why the tuition for domestic students is going up instead of pointing the finger at government officials i agree with you i i know you that you agree with me but what i want you to do is to channel any anger or animus that you had towards international students any uh any intention that you had of speaking out against international students and go even harder against the elected officials any elected official that does not support free education all the way through the end of your education Totally, I agree. Make, I agree. Those are those are the people that have all of the power. So let's focus on on them. Yeah. Uh, ask Henry 
will you will you answer a question right now from a foreign student? Yeah. Melania? I think Melania wants to ask you a couple of questions. Oh, we have a, a student David? from Slovenia. Slovenia, yes. Melania from Slovenia. You have a question for Henry. You have, to, un- to, you have to unmute um, yourself. We have a, a first lady named Melania, too. She has to unmute herself. There you go. Oh, yeah, unmute yourself, Melania. There you go. Hi, Melania. Hello, Davey. You have a question? You're calling from Slovenia? Just Davey. Ah, okay. What, what is your question for Henry? One moment, Peter. Okay. Henry, should I Hello. vote for Biden? While we're waiting for... Mo- did, did Hello, Henry. Oh, okay. Melania from Slovenia. Yeah, what Hello, is your Hello. first lady. No, no, May it's- I call you Hank? You may call me whatever you like. Hello, Henry. Henry, why is it we call it Ebola and not Ebola? And are we really all in this together? It's a good question. It's a good question. Uh, so if I was clever, I would find a joke for that. But instead, I'll just talk about the etymology of Ebola. Um, it's like email, right? Ebola. Well, some may E-trade. think that. Uh, or they might think that it's named after the Ebola River in the Congo, uh, which is a subsidiary of the Congo River. So it's a tributary of the Congo River. is called the Ebola River. Mm-hmm. And uh, when we had the first two outbreaks, there was two outbreaks in 1976 that happened almost simultaneously, one in what was at the time Zaire and one in Sudan, uh, with nowadays South Sudan. Um, but the one that got reported on first was the one in Zaire. And when the international uh, medical units came in to kind of try to figure out what was going on, they wanted to name it after a place that was nearby. And the Ebola River was one of the nearest distinctive landmarks to... Now I show you my teeth? No, no, no. Oh, my God. <clears throat> Hello, Henry. I have another question. Okay. This is Melania, First Lady. Oh, Long time if no proteins see. make my body, are they my pimp? If what? Ask the question again. Proteins if make pro- my body, are they my pimp? Uh, it depends on, uh, I guess, where the money is going. Yeah. Any other questions? <clears throat> yes. Just Davey. Do, do you think it's okay for man to ask woman to have breast enlargement on first date? <laughs> oh, my God. That's a, that's a is... medical question. <sighs> Henry. So, uh, I mean, I, I could definitely see where if a woman was discussing it during the, the meal about her self-confidence issues that uh, a, a gentle suggestion. No. <laughs> Anything Thank else? Thank you, Hank. Thank you. <laughs> Any other Thank questions? You. No, Davy. Okay. Thank you, First Lady Melania. All right. Let's go to uh, 
You forgot about the first case, first recorded case of Ebola in ancient Athens that destroyed uh, the world's first democracy as well. Well, there was the plague of Athens, but you know, Ebola has actually been around for a lot longer. So I've discussed this on a, a previous show, I, I don't know, a couple months ago. My research that I do is actually on a bit of Ebola genetic information that was inserted into the mammalian genome, which is a fancy way of saying that at some point a past Ebola infection had stuck a little bit of its own RNA into our, our genetic sequence. And we were able to trace this back to being between 24 and 26 million years ago. Yeah. So e Ebola or an Ebola precursor existed at least 24 to 26 million years ago. And cancer, they just found a, a case of bone cancer in a, in a 60 million year old uh, uh, dinosaur fossil. Yeah, they, yep. Yeah. I remember seeing that in the, in the news. Okay, John. Don't get sick, it is waiting yes. time. Yes. Here's, here's my chance to intervene when Jim Earl's actually here. Um, I want you to address the, uh, I guess you'd call him the elephant and donkey, but he's actually anti both. That's in the chat room. Uh, Jimmy Dore, what do you think about him generally, politically, and all that? Jimmy? Yeah, I Jimmy Dore. I don't think there's anything I'd really disagree with him uh, on, to tell you the truth. Yeah, well, I'm I a mean, fan. I, I, we, we've had di disagreements before on, on certain issues and stories, but, uh, you know, I, I can't think of any at the moment. Maybe you can bridge the gap between Jimmy and David. <laughs> <laughs> I, I didn't know there was a gap, but, you know, uh, you know, I'm just a worker in a mill. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> That's what we all are. We're, we're worker ants. We do our best. We get up in the morning or the afternoon, have a drink of liquor beer, anything to keep, keep us going until midnight when we scream in the backyard at the neighbors who won't shut the fuck up. And that's all I do every day. All right. I don't, I don't have time to. <laughs> Thank you, John. All right. <laughs> Let's go Get to the hell off of this thing. Alexandra. Hi. You can call me Alex. Hey, everybody. Yes, hey, Alex. Carol, I love you and adore you for years, and the addition of Martha is just phenomenal. I love you both and agree with everything you say. Oh, so, so do I. You. So do you. I. And I just want to say, uh, Henry, I have a question. Believe it or not, I'm a nurse, and I do contact tracing for the state of New Mexico, believe it or not, Department mm -hmm. of Health, which is very interesting. I'll make a comment and then I'll ask a question. The thing that I found, there's so much uh, uh, misinformation about uh, when I talk to people, they don't know a lot of the basics about, the, uh, about how to keep safe. And they think, well, I live with five other people. My grandmother and sister are positive, but we're not showing symptoms, so we're not going to get tested. I hear that a lot, you know, or... Um, you know, you know, things like that. Um, just a lot of confusion and a lot of stuff like that goes on. And I just I feel good. I'm able to give them some information as far as cleaning things like when you leave the house and come back in. Do you have to like take your I take my shoes off anyway. But what about the clothes you're wearing or yeah. the, 
or, or the food you bring in, you know, this whole thing on cleaning items from the outside into your home environment and also uh, the food, you know, and what is the best thing to use to clean stuff? Sure. Great question. So we don't have any documented cases of people being infected by eating food that had been out in the environment or being infected through particles that were trapped in their clothing. But that frankly could be down to the fact that it's really hard to pinpoint these things, let's say 10 days after um, that exposure would have happened because you as a contact tracer would know we can start showing symptoms anytime between two and 14 days after the exposure, sometimes longer, actually about five to 10% of cases are after 14 days. But we, so we don't have any confirmed cases of that happening as of now. That doesn't mean it doesn't happen. When they did the studies that looked at how long the virus can persist on different surfaces, it didn't persist on fabric surfaces super well. It was able to stay on there for some fabrics for several hours. It was able to stay on some fabrics for a day or so. Now, the question of whether if that virus, if the viral particles are embedded, let's say, in your cotton shirt, if you're going to be able to, four hours after it had gotten there, touch your shirt and then touch your eye, and you got it from your shirt onto your finger and from your finger onto your eye, it's probably unlikely, but in theory, it'd be possible. The food is a little bit even more possible because that's something that's going to be going into your mouth by definition. But again, we haven't seen any documented cases, at least that I've seen, of transmission occurring through eating infected or contaminated foods. If you wanted to disinfect things, and we do at my house because I live with somebody who's immunocompromised, and that would be my caveat for basically everything I say when I say there's very little risk of something happening, if you live with somebody that's immunocompromised or you're immunocompromised yourself, it's worth taking extra precautions because those are the people who are going to suffer the most from this infection. So if you're in a situation like mine or if you're just being extra careful and you want to disinfect whatever you're bringing in from the outside, groceries, let's say, you can either use uh, rubbing alcohol or hand sanitizer, ethyl or isopropyl alcohol, preferably above 70%. Or you can use a very dilute solution of bleach. Um, I don't remember what the exact concentration was, but if you just go on Google and type in bleach concentration COVID, it'll tell you what the recommended dilution is. It's really dilute. COVID does not do well in, in any sort of bleach solution. So what you would want to do if you were going with bleach, for example, is fill up your sink with water, put a cap full of bleach in it or whatever the equivalent uh, to get to that dilution threshold is, and then just dunk your things in there, let them sit in the water for 15 seconds and pull them out. They'll be completely fine then. But it's unlikely that you would have to worry in the first place, unless perhaps if you were immunocompromised to begin with. We're Ricky. Hello, uh, David, uh, Jim, and uh, our young uh, genius, uh, Henry. How are you? Good. How are you, Ricky? Yeah, very good, very good. Hey, I've got a, I've got, I've got some um, questions off off piste. Really, um, we refer to you and if you as um, our uh, our boy genius and um, and office hours, we've discussed your uh, childhood uh, evolution into what you are now. Mm-hmm. Um, I wanted to uh, interrogate perhaps a little bit of your. Uh, um, uh, starting as as a sort of seven or eight year old as a um, 
budding Marxist and um, a little bit of the habits that you have and, and maintain to this day around that. So in particular, I'd like you to address your um, your reading habits as a 7 to 10-year-old, um, where you started, how you do it, um, as an educational piece for um, young Marxists around the world. Uh, and, and somebody um, somebody's reading uh, Das Kapital on Twitter. Yeah, I, there's there's some guy who um, I think has been impersonating me, to be honest. One bite at a time. Yeah, it's my like son says I should day. be joining you. I, how, you're reading it like what four pages a day? Yeah, yeah, it's praxis for the perplexed. Um, got that from Professor Anan apparently, and it's a good way for people to sort of start. Um, start learning about Marx without having to um, be told by Thomas Friedland what it is, you know. Wow. So read it for yourself. So, but I, but I really did think that um, Henry is uh, is the sort of the the basis for how parents should be teaching their children. Um, would you mind, Henry, perhaps explaining how you how you got started in your uh, life as a boy genius? Sure, I'll, I'll try to keep it brief because I don't know how interested uh, a lot of people will be, but I was a voracious reader from a very young age. And the thing that was useful for me is that my parents had me try to read a bunch of different things on a bunch of different topics. If you have somebody that focuses on one topic only, they may end up being very good in that topic. But unless they have a passion for that topic, when they get to the age where they're going to work in that field, it's, it's really dicey to do that. So fortunately for me, my parents instilled um, the value of reading for reading's sake in, in many different fields and trying to pick up things from what I was reading. So I read very little fiction as a kid. I watched very little TV, uh, but I read a lot and I read about history, about military tactics, about diseases. I've got several of my childhood books that I read about diseases on my bookshelf right next to me right now. Uh, you know, everything, cookbooks, like I just have books up the yin yang. So what I would recommend to people if they wanted to be like me, which I would not recommend, but I know some people might want that, um, is just to read everything that catches your eye. Don't, don't pigeonhole yourself into one field. Don't put yourself into going on one track to try to get absolutely the most in-depth. <laughs> uh, sorry, the podcast listeners are not going to know why I'm laughing, but that's okay. Um, it's don't, not don't me, it's read- Jim Earl. It's Jim Earl. If, can somebody take a picture of it? I'll post it uh, <laughs> as evidence. Uh, yeah, but don't don't just read in one topic. I I didn't read very many deep um, theoretical or philosophical texts when I was young. I was mostly reading um, history, people's history books, biographies, um, autobiographies, books about diseases, frankly, is what I read a lot of, which is more or less why I'm in the field that I'm in. But then only when I was uh, kind of high school, college age, did I really start delving into the the more theoretical texts, which was useful for me because I at least had the basis of knowledge, the historical background, the, the ability to think of how things interconnect with each other. Then I could use the theoretical knowledge to integrate into that later on. So I hope that that uh, answers at least some of the question. 
All right. Let's go to thank you. Let us go to Steve. Let me unmute you there. Got to unmute yourself, Steve. Steve, you had your hand up. Let's go to Magnus. Magnus. Moi mokolat. What is your question? Doing well. How are you, Magnus? Uh, it's all good, David. Uh, well, I have several questions. Uh, the first couple are questions that I suspect David want to ask of Henry, but he either doesn't know it or he doesn't dare. So I'll ask it for him, Henry, okay? Okay, go ahead. So, have you ever seen a grown man naked? <laughs> okay, airplane references are in my wheelhouse, fortunately. Do you like movies about gladiators? I've been held in a Turkish prison, believe it or not. Good, good. No, but I had a question as well. But, again, I forgot it. It's this tequila and pickle juice, man. Uh, okay, thank you, Magnus. Was that your impersonation of me, Magnus? Let's go to uh, Pete. Pete? Pete? All right. Pete. Pete. All right. All right. Uh, Steve, I think we're out of... Pete, what is your question? All right. You have to turn off your radio. All right. I think we're done. Because... Pete? Petey. All right. He keeps getting muted and then unmuted, so I don't know quite what's going All on. All right. I, I, I think it's... Uh, let me mute Pete. All right. And I will get him next time. We have a question from uh, Tom. Hey, Tom. How are you guys doing, all of you? Jim, I, I want to say hello to you. I uh, have enjoyed your stuff forever and ever. Oh, thank you. Hello. Hey, yeah. Uh, anyway, Henry, I got a kind of a two part question. Uh, could you tell me if you have read about, uh, I think it's the University, I don't know if it's University of Southern California, but a university in California has uh, apparently developed some kind of nasal spray that seems promising. In yeah, nanotechnology. Of- I was reading about that. It's like. Yeah. It- Using synthetic molecules or something like that to uh, uh, It's before a vaccine. They say you spray it once a day until they can come up with a vaccine. It disarms the protein spike. It's out of San Francisco. So, Dean, I'm guessing from your look there, Henry, that uh, you hadn't read about this or no? Yeah, I haven't seen that yet, but uh, ask again on Monday. I'll have that prepared with Irritable. Okay, okay. Well, actually, of all places, I ended up running across it in a New York Post uh, article, which is not a place I normally go for news anyway, but... I read about uh, it in the San Francisco Chronicle. I'm sorry? I read about it in the San Francisco Chronicle. (laughs) Yeah, well, it looked legit because I went to some of the hyperlinks, so uh, I thought you might know a little bit more than the article, which was pretty brief from the one that I read... So the other one that was brought Excuse to Excuse me for one second, Tom. 
I read it in the San Francisco Chronicle, and it sounded like a press release. It, it sounded too good to be true. But well, that's why I'm asking about yeah. this. Uh, if if uh, I don't know, it, it, it seems yes, I I would agree with that, there, David. Yeah. Okay. So the related question I have, and it was going to be yeah. over the counter, as I remember. It wasn't even going to be. Sound like well, this didn't mention anything about that. It didn't yeah. go that far. Go ahead, Tom. Okay. Well, anyway, my my uh, other questions kind of related. It was just the reading the article made me think about this. It seems like creating a vaccine is a very very difficult thing. And from things I've heard you say, and it uh, it sounds more and more like. It, there's a possibility we may never really get a vaccine or at least one that works for any kind of length of time and that it might be something that we have to use, uh, you know, use over and over again. So I'm wondering then if perhaps the more important approach that we have to look at uh, in addressing COVID-19 isn't through uh, not a vaccine, but uh, something like this nasal spray or some other kinds of techniques that are going to be able to help us uh, address it. Yeah. So thanks for the question, Tom. Um, What I've said before, and I'll say it again, is that we could have had this pandemic completely under control if we would have done the cheapest and most sensible option, which is public health measures. We didn't necessarily need a good treatment for COVID. We didn't necessarily need a vaccine for COVID. But if we had sensible public health measures, like some of the Nordic countries, not Sweden, sorry, Magnus, or New Zealand, uh, Germany did okay after uh, a few sporadic outbreaks in some of their meatpacking facilities. If we had sensible public health measures, we really could have had the pandemic under control without having any biomedical solutions, which would have then granted us a ton of time to work on the biomedical side of things before we really had that many people that were getting sick or dying from COVID. The second thing that you would look for then, of course, is uh, biomolecular drugs that would reduce the severity or likelihood of death of the disease. And I just looked up this um, this news article that you were talking about with the, the nasal spray. And it looks like it's, it's basically a synthetic antibody that would bind to the spike protein and would inhibit it from um, accessing the receptors on the cell surface. It's something that people have considered doing before, but we haven't really seen very um, good examples of it working. So one of the things that I know this is getting off topic from the question a little bit, but One of the things that we've actually considered using for therapeutics in terms of antibodies that we're not generating in our body are things called nanobodies. Um, They're generated by llamas and alpacas. Llamas and alpacas have uh, antibodies that are much shorter than the antibodies that we have, and it's much easier to get them to specifically bind to certain epitopes let's say. So you could have them very specifically bind to the spike protein. And what you would do is you'd make an injection with a bunch of these nanobodies, stick it in, and then it would bind to whatever component of the bacteria or virus that you were injecting it for and prevent that from then having any effect. That was something that was considered, but it actually, as far as I know, hasn't been 
effectively used, at least on a wide scale yet anywhere. But from what I'm seeing from this article, this is more or less what they're trying to do, although I don't see the the origin of these synthetic antibodies. But it could be something like llamas. I haven't seen any paper that it was actually in yet. But to address the vaccine question, the, the fastest that we've had a vaccine produced in the past was about four years, which was the mumps vaccine from beginning until we were able to have it mass produced and be ready to go into the public. Four years is actually quite short. I, well, it's a record time, but that's pretty short in the, the life of a scientist that most of our projects take significantly longer than that. But there's so much money being thrown at this specific coronavirus that I'm almost certain at some point we're going to have a vaccine. The question is when. There are several really promising looking vaccines out there right now that are in phase three trials, which uh, just to plug my Patreon, I had a post today about what happens to appro- from beginning vaccine development all the way until approval and beyond approval. So if anybody's interested in, in learning about what happens in the the entire thread of vaccine development check that out but we're going to likely have a vaccine and it's likely going to be close to record timing if not shattering the record for the previous fastest vaccine available the big questions that we're still going to have are how efficacious is it and how safe is it and these are things that we're not going to know even until after we've approved a vaccine candidate because the final trials are only on a you know, 30,000 people or so. And a lot of vaccines get past that phase and we think that they work. I shouldn't say a lot of vaccines. There are examples of vaccines where they get through all of the trials and then they get put into the public. And then only later on do we realize, oh, wait, we had problems with this vaccine. So, for example, in 1976, the swine flu vaccine was linked to Guillain-Barre syndrome. We didn't know that until well after it had already been approved. Uh, Another example, 2017, in the Philippines, they had a dengue uh, vaccine. And, of course, the idea of a vaccine is to prevent infection from happening, or if you do get the infection, it's going to be milder. What happened is when they gave the people this dengue vaccine, it made them less likely to get dengue in general, but if they did get it, they were much more likely to die. They developed dengue hemorrhagic fever rather than just suffering from regular old dengue. Um, there was a, in 2001, there was a, a Lyme disease vaccine that came out and was through approvals. And only after it was done being approved, when they started giving it to a bunch of people, did we find out, oh, there's some really bad side effects here. Cause the, the, even with the phase three trials where they're sampling it on tens of thousands of people, it's still a really small sample size and you're not able to tease out all of this stuff. So we're, we're likely going to have a vaccine in the relatively near future, but we're not necessarily going to know how long it's going to work for. And if there's any ill effects until a couple of years down the road. Okay. Fantastic. Nicole, we will end with Nicole, the brilliant Nicole Penny from Newfoundland folklore yeah, archivist folklore archivist hi Henry hi Nicole I have a question for you I have a question for you I've it, it's a really pressing matter actually okay. um, so thank you for taking my question I want to know if Ben Shapiro's doctor wife is correct 
And is wet ass P word really a medical condition? Or did he just like, is that the best cell phone in the world? What is this? I've <laughs> heard about this story, David. This is great. I told you, you to like look to this up, would David. You like to explain this. This. what you get for not answering your, any of your messages or your emails. This is what you get. They're all against me. Sorry. <laughs> Nicole, would you like to explain this to David so that then I can... I will explain it question. to David. David, uh, I guess I shouldn't say the P word. All right. So... Ben Shapiro put out um, a rant earlier this week, actually when you got when you were recording earlier this week, and it was him ranting about Cardi B and Megan Thee Stallion's new song, WAP. Yeah, what is WAP? I saw, what is WAP Can mean? I say a bad word? Uh, it's not a bad word to me, but maybe to some people. What is WAP? Because I, I saw that. What, wet is, what is WAP? What? Wet-ass pussy. wet ass pussy this sounds like the montreal cognitive test yeah get a a mop looks like trump's hang on i made a joke jim that was funny (laughs) what what ass pussy car (laughs) (laughs) i made that joke (laughs) david no one's listening to you i know know. go ahead thank you david you know dave used to operate a uh llama petting zoo outside of las vegas does that have anything to do with anything (laughs) no i just thought it would be funny to say (laughs) it's just good good information to know thank you okay and so what did ben shapiro write about wet ass pussy Oh, he was like appalled by it. And actually, David, I have a question for you, too, on this matter. So you're going to have you have some homework now. Okay. you have to go and listen. You have to go watch the no first three things. You have to go listen to the original song unedited. Do not listen to or watch the video first. Then you're going to go. But I'm a hypochondriac and I'm afraid I'll think I've got wet ass pussy. (laughs) Well, well. See, Henry's going to tell you after how ridiculous that is. So you have to go and listen to the unedited version of the song. Then you have to go watch the video. And then you have to go and listen to what Ben Shapiro had to say about it. And it's just amazing. And then, see, he kind of read out the lyrics. And I don't know if he doesn't know how the Internet works. But so I was thinking, like, was this a bit that failed because conservatives don't understand humor and they suck or like, is he genuine because he's also a conservative weirdo that sucks? Like, I really don't get it. Like, as a comedian, I'd like your input on it, too. Well, I don't know what wet-ass pussy means. <laughs> oh, Dave. That's why you have to listen to the song, Dave. But what does it mean? You're missing out. You listen to the song. This is... See, this it's, is why it's you have two women. It's two women singing about what? You miss out on world events. Because you don't answer your emails from us. Okay, so what does wet ass pussy mean? <laughs> I, I know, I, I would assume it means that somebody. If you don't know, you are burning yourself so bad right now, David. I would assume it's a song about a really hot guy. <laughs> He's giving me wet ass pussy. I feel so bad for you. <laughs> what? I, how am I unhip? <laughs> what ass pussy? I like. 
that that Henry is giving me wet ass pussy. Yeah, 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 yes, yes, yes. Right? Am Dan, I getting it right? Please, Dan, can you clip that, please? Thank you, Dan. Can you have a wet ass penis? <laughs> How am I out of touch? Asking for a friend. You wouldn't be if you answered any of our emails. I'm sorry. <laughs> okay. Jim, do you know what wet ass pussy means? Uh, yes, I, of course I do. <laughs> what do I look yeah, like, an idiot? He does. He, it, it, it means that he you're. Lives with pussy. Martha. He knows. <laughs> and he lives, and he also lives with wet. Melania. It means your pussy is wet. Does it not? Uh, did you hear the cat? You said wet, the cat? Wasn't that perfect timing? (laughs) All right. Henry, you want to respond to this? Sure. So, first of all, caveat, I also don't know the song. Uh, I don't know any songs that are newer than about 1985. But, um, yeah, to me, when I saw Ben Shapiro's tweet on the matter, it appeared to me to just be a massive cell phone. But if we are going to take things very seriously for the moment, there are situations where uh, you could actually be experiencing uh, wetness of the vaginal area that are caused by an infection. So you have bacterial bacterial vaginosis. Um, just to preface this, women always have bacteria in their vagina. It's a very healthy thing. And actually, it's oh, one of the no, reasons why... No, 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 no. Yeah, they're, gross oh, they're good things, oh, good this things. This isn't what I wanted. Actually, um, one of the, the reasons why children that are born um, via vaginal birth have a much lower incidence rate of asthma and um, Crohn's disease is because of the bacteria of the vaginal canal as opposed to if they're delivered via C-section, they don't get those bacteria when they're born. And those bacteria actually are really important for developing um, the child's normal microbiota. Wait, so there, anyway. there's, hang on, hang on. There's gut fauna, you're saying. Yes. And gunt fauna. Yes, exactly, David. And that's why Julius Caesar got stabbed to death. Because he was a cesarean. Right. Bad for your, it's not good for your longevity. Right. Right. No, but it, it is true, though. Uh, I mean, if you take studies of children who are born vaginally versus via C-section, you can look at the microbiota. Suppose you're conceived through a C-section. That could take some doing, David. Okay. Uh, not going to lie. That that would be, I'd be impressed. Uh, but the point is, is that How if you look How does a C-section at, work? Like... The baby is given a switchblade and just cuts his way out? I mean, that would be uh, probably how somebody like Sylvester Stallone was born. But I think that the majority of C-sections are done from the external surface well, that rather doesn't than seem from nice. the internal surface. Why do they call it a C-section? What happened to the A and B? Boy, I'd hate to, hate to have been the doctor who did the A and B sections. Now, there is a much even more... What about Loge? Can you get Loge? giving birth, but I'm not going to talk about it right now because it is absolutely atrocious. What about a Loge? They have a Loge section? Couldn't tell you, David. There's there's something worse than a C-section? Yes, much worse. The orchestra. (laughs) That's very expensive. I mean, I don't know. I don't know how 
gruesome we want to get right now, but it's actually a fairly common procedure in developing parts of the world. Then it's not funny. We can't laugh at it. You can, <laughs> you can pass out from hearing about it, but... Well, let me guess. Okay, have at it. Well, let me see. So it, it's, it doesn't come through the vaginal canal. It kind of does. They go in I, through the vaginal canal. Is it an ass section? No, no. Do they give the, the, the baby acid reflux and the mother burps him up? No, that, that would be also, it's quite some feat. Does the baby you, come out the nose? Is it a nose baby? That woman would not have a face afterwards. I could, you know what, Henry? I play dumb to make you look good, okay? Okay. But okay. I'm much older than you, and I've seen a lot, and I'm pretty sure I can figure this out, okay? Okay. Especially with Jim helping me. Jim? Dave, you were vomited up. Yes, I was. <laughs> so was this podcast. <laughs> Wait a second. Are, are you getting upset, Henry? No, not at all. <laughs> okay. So you're saying it, it involves, it partly involves the vagina? Yes. Okay. Okay. And it, it involves, involves a baby. Vagina, but it's not a typical birth through the vagina. Okay. It involves a vagina? Partly involves the vagina and a baby. I'm gonna, is yeah. it sex with Alan Dershowitz? That's a really good one, David. Did I get Oh, wait a second. That's a, hang on. Okay, so it involves the vagina. Does the baby come out the vagina or does it go yes, back? Yes, yes, it, it comes does. Out the, does it come out the mother's vagina? Yes, The baby it does. comes there, out its own vagina. So everything sounds normal so far, but there's something that the physician does. Uh, it has to do with the stomach, doesn't it? No, 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 no. I knew it didn't. Jim and I, listen, Jim and I can figure this out. We read the I'll New York Times. I'll tell you what the procedure is called because it won't help you with it. It's called the Zarate procedure. Oh, of course. Yeah, that was I don't know. Star Trek. I, I'm assuming episode. none of the listeners have ever heard of it. Caesar, either because- Caesar. We get the word czar from Caesar. So obviously, <laughs> yes, the baby's crowning. There's some crowning when when the baby is crowning. He's delivered in a, in a, in a Fabergé egg. Okay. okay that was a, I'm sorry. That was really uncalled for. <clears throat> well, I'm just going to let you know, David, because uh, I'm pretty sure that the people are not going to want to keep hearing about. Is it disgusting? It's, it's relatively gruesome, but I mean, it's something that from a medical standpoint, it's interesting. It used to be really common. It's kind of fallen out of favor in the developed world with the advent of the C-section. But Did it happen a lot in 19th century America? Uh, I don't know how long back it went. Yeah, yeah. I believe it was longer ago than that, though. Mm. This would have been like uh, late early 1600s or so i believe that it would have started catching on and it really didn't fall out of favor until the the c-section came about you go in through the vagina well there's a step before they even go in david this is the gruesome part okay i'll I'll just let you know do you know what's done with magnets no it's (laughs) done with a scalpel uh do you know what the pubic symphysis is the what the pubic symphysis. It predates the Moog synthesizer, I believe. 
Yes, Coco it does. By several it. millennia. You know Coco what the pubic Heron. symphony is? <laughs> the pubic <laughs> what? Just the pubic symphysis. Pubic symphysis. The pubic symphysis. Imagine your hips. They wrap around to the front, right? And then the two bones come together in the front, in the middle. Yeah. In between those two bones, your two hip bones, when they wrap around the front, there's a little section of cartilage that goes in between the two. That's where my vagina cartilage. is. Well, it's it's above and in front of it, but yeah, the, the idea is is that when they're they're giving birth, that cartilage is allowed to expand. That's why it's not one fused bone; otherwise, it would never be able to expand for the baby to be passed. I, I think I know what they do. Yeah, if the if the woman is having problems, they, like a uh, walnut, delivering the child, they get a, a nutcracker. Well, they take a scalpel. Yeah, they cut right through the cartilage and pop the pelvis open, reach in with their hands and pull the baby out. It's a very bloody procedure and absolutely gruesome. The, those poor, those poor doctors. Those poor doctors. Jim, hang on, Nicole. Those poor, those poor doctors who have to go through that. Oh, yeah. the screaming and the, the loudness. I feel the, so. I feel so terrible for the doctors. Where it's done too, oh, no. I, you know. And is the woman able to? Uh, is she is this a woman is she okay? Is the woman able to uh, pay her bill? <laughs> well, again, this would have been mostly in developing areas where uh, you know, they they would just do things kind of communally. The doctors aren't particularly well trained. They're not charging a a whole lot. Well, usually something wrong. goes wrong. Is there a lawsuit? Can the doctor sue the patient? Sue the patient? That would be a a good question, David, but uh well, yeah, I've all right. Uh, Nicole, I, I interrupted you. I'm sorry. I was trivializing something that's very serious. Oh, it's okay, David. Uh, Henry, I just wanted to say you answered my question completely. And, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. I'm sorry. I got very sidetracked, which happens with me frequently. Thank you. Thank you. Covered it all. I'll tell you who but else covered it all. To answer the all. question very shortly, I'm pretty sure <laughs> but, Ben Shapiro was just a cell phone. Well, what was, so what was, what was uh, Ben Shapiro saying about this? He was that saying... Was, well, Go ahead, Henry. Oh, no, Nicole, you can, you can go ahead. You're more familiar with the story than I am, I'm sure. Oh, he, yeah. Uh, he, um, he was just, like, disgusted with the content of the video and the lyrics of the song, you know? And, of course, like, I hate this. You know, it's like there are a lot of videos put out with sexual content, but I do notice that black women do get the brunt of... Um, criticism about showing their bodies and being sexual um, in music videos and in media a lot more by the conservative right um, in, in the United States. I'm just saying that as an outsider in Canada looking in, you know, we used to have our own issues too, but, you know, with your media and the way it is. And uh, back in my day, the video that was like really... Um, you know, uh, controversial was, I don't know if you, any of you remember this, but it was dirty with, um, Christina Aguilera and, oh my God, I can't remember who else was in it now. It was, um, anyway, it was a hip hop song. So it was like, you know, black guy, white woman kind of dynamic. And a lot of people, there was like an uproar about it. You know, someone in the comments, tell me who <laughs> she teamed up with in that song. But um, you're sort of getting the same vibe with this, where, uh, you know, you have women who are 
um, you know, like showing their bodies and very proud of themselves and talking about sex and all of this. And then like Ben Shapiro just kind of freaking out about it. Hmm. The point is, is that Ben Shapiro was very confused that women can become wet in certain anatomical locations and he thought that it was a serious medical condition that needed looking into by doctors. Well, I, yes, so it, it's a great cell phone, and the internet had a lot of fun with it. And he read out the lyrics, but he used euphemisms for all the bad words. And then, of course, the internet had a great time with it and memed the hell out of it. And they put the song, like his lyrics, to like the audio of the song and and like people made remixes. And it just like was a great moment in the internet. People are so cruel. Yeah. So a, a woman who is wet down there, it isn't a medical condition? Is, is she, like, missing? Like she's peeing? Is that... So, David, there's many things that can cause that. What? One, one which you, I, I know you have several kids, but you still may be unfamiliar with it. It's something called sexual arousal. What does that mean? Exactly. I knew that that was what I was going to be hearing from you. That, that means oh, incontinence, right? Talk with him. I'm sorry, I what? Believe, I can't believe we, we're here already. We have to have the talk with him, Henry. I can't believe it. Yeah, we have to. Uh, David's talked about when he had the, the talk before. We have to take him out to the woods and talk leave about the there. birds and the beads. <laughs> <laughs> well, it would be better for your listeners, but, you know. I was, um, I, my my parents taught me that sexual arousal always led to incontinence. Yeah. Really? Mm-hmm. Interesting. Is that wrong? That's how I understand it. <laughs> like the worst kind. Yeah. Yeah, that's why David can go for so long without peeing. <laughs> that could explain that. All right. <laughs> this, this is this segment went off the rails very, very precipitously. Well, I mean, I mean, you know, this, this is fun. this is almost as disturbing as Doctor Jen telling us that hyenas give birth through their clitoris and they can die. Many of them do. That's awful. Yeah. But anyway, I'm I'm glad to have had this conversation with you guys. Thank you, Henry. Thank you. Thank you I, I feel, uh, yeah. Did you know that, Jim, about hyenas? Tell me that again. Henry? Hyenas, Hi- can, hyenas give birth through the clitoris. Through it. They and, they can, it th- and they can through die? Through the clitoris. And about a third of them die during the process. So there is a god. <laughs> Anyway, <laughs> that's it. That's our show. I want to thank all our guests. Uh, Dan, can you can you uh, cut that for uh, the clip for our highlight reel? Uh, that was the best. Thank you, Henry. Henry Hakamaki, Doctor Henry <laughs> Hakamaki. Wow. Now, what do you what do you think when Jim says something like that? You have this look. You have this innocent look on your face. When he Did says, you not hear me laughing, David. I know. The laughs are generally an indication that I enjoyed it. Yes. Unbelievable. 
Well, <laughs> patreon.com forward slash Huck1995. 1995, because that's the year Henry was born. And we're doing a special pay-per-view to uh, introduce Henry and Irritable to the wonderful world of charging for something. My ride is here. Did you hear that? Yeah, I heard it. And just so everybody knows, every penny that uh, I raise through both the Patreon and the pay-per-view is is going to go directly for finishing up my education. So it's not... uh, lining my pockets i I don't even have pockets to line right here i'll finish up your education you're you're an asshole oh my god jim don't get him into an argument i'm sorry don't argue with him when you say something he's he's younger you have to encourage school is for weenies well that's true hey i have a question for you henry okay david i live in new york Yes. Should I vote for Joe Biden? Senator David, this is an intensely personal question, but if you would like my personal take on it. Yes, sir. What I would say is that if you live in a deep blue state to vote for a third party candidate, if you live in a swing state, vote for Biden. Now, if you live in a deep blue state and you are not going to vote for biden what you should do is phone bank and swing states so you you yourself don't have to vote for him because your vote's not going to do anything based on the electoral model that we have like john hayes like john hayes john hayes actually john hayes and i have had this exact conversation before if you live in a blue state where there's no chance of trump winning feel free to vote third party and david i'm gonna pitch this idea again you should bring a few of the third party candidates on the show i'm more pretty sure that they would that they would be welcoming of the airtime um not after they see this (laughs) true (laughs) i I scared just about anyone off uh but will they be willing to play how was this baby born Uh, that could be the, the you know, the uh, uh, grand finale, the mm-hmm. last question. That way they don't run away. I will uh, vote early. for whichever candidate can tell me what hole this fetus came out of. But, yeah, so my, my suggestion <laughs> oh, would I'm be. Oh, I'm the bad guy. All of a sudden, mm-hmm. I'm disgusting. Fine. Oh, I never said that, David. But, oh. uh, my My suggestion to answer the question would be, if you live in a blue state, Vote your conscience. Vote for a third party that has ideals that represent yours. But phone bank in swing states to ensure that Donald Trump is not the the president come uh, January. But can I leave you with a quote, Ben? That this will be a good way to wrap it up. So this is from Marx. He said, even when there's no prospect whatsoever of their being elected, the workers must put up their own candidates in order to persevere or preserve their independence to count their forces and to bring before the public their revolutionary attitude and party standpoint, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. The quote goes on for quite some time. But the is that Richard is, Marks, the singer? Yeah, you know, you'd be surprised what those late 80s pop singers came up with. But uh, I don't know, it must have been one of the B-side tracks. But the point is, is that I do think that if you live in a blue state, you can make a statement saying that you don't agree with the direction that the Democratic Party is going. 
by letting your voice be heard and voting for a third party that does align more properly with your ideals. But you can also ensure that Trump loses by phone banking and doing what you can in swing states to make sure that Joe Biden wins those swing states. I just don't think anybody's going to have the excitement in them to phone bank for Joe Biden except some former Hillary supporters. Uh, there's not going to be that excitement. I don't see people putting up Biden, Harris, uh, lawn uh, signs. I, I, <laughs> I agree with, I, I agree with you, Jim. That's, that. That, that's exactly why I'm suggesting that the people that are wanting Trump out but morally will not vote for Biden since you're going to take the moral high ground, you might as well suffer like the people that actually do have to vote for Biden in the swing states and, and help out a little bit by phone banking. Well, I don't think I don't think any you see, I, I, I don't think there's such thing as voting to make a statement because that's calling it a protest vote. I don't think votes are protests or, or statements. I think you're voting your conscience. That's what you should always do. Right. And, it's, you know, you set yourself up to be scapegoated like four years ago uh, people who voted for for uh, um, Jill Stein were scapegoated yeah. well, it's just a protest vote no I was voting in my conscience and so I think people if, if people voted their conscience from the very beginning then we wouldn't have to worry about people like Donald Trump coming up through the ranks because they would have voted for the right people and the right candidates early 40, 50 years ago Thank instead you, of these so-called compromise candidates like the Clintons and Obama. But that's my rant. No, I, I don't disagree with that at all. I don't disagree with you either. Well, then what the hell are we doing? I don't know. I don't okay. Know. Well, let's wrap up the show. Let me thank all our guests. Shall we? This was a great show. It really was. Uh, I was pleasantly surprised. Did you see uh, Thomas Frank? No, I I missed Thomas Frank. I and I didn't get to see uh, Greg Palast either. I, I was I wanted to ask him a question about his uh, calculations. Okay, I want to thank Henry Huckamaki, Jim Earl. Reverend Barry W. Lynn, Dr. Philip Hershenfeld, his son Ethan, comedian Joe DeVito, philosophy professor Ben Burgess, Pete Dominic, Bert Ross, Dr. Jennifer Vertolin, Dave Cyrus, and Thomas Frank, author of What's the Matter with Kansas? Listen, liberal, pick up his new book, The People Know, A Brief History of Antipopulism. That is The People Know. A Brief History of Anti-Populism. What a great, great show. Thank you all for, for coming via Zoom or by phone. We're doing office hours tonight. If you would like an invitation to office hours, please go to davidfeldmanshow.com. Hit the Attend a Live Taping. We will send you a link, and you're in. No passwords. Thank you so much, everybody. I'll see you tonight at office hours.